0: Welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in, coming back to the show. First time listeners finding the show, welcome aboard. Always happy to have you. Hope you've had a chance to check out Counterpunch Plus, the brand new subscriber section over at the website there. Although the uh, print publication has gone to a better place, it's been retired, it is no more. You can now become a subscriber directly through the website. Not only will you get all of the columns, all of the things that used to be in the print magazine, you'll also now have access to more the 25 years of archives All of the great stuff that was printed in Counterpunch going back to the 1990s, the 2000s, the last decade, all the way up till today. So much great stuff. Not a lot of places you're going to go to find a feature like that. It's also a great way to support Counterpunch to keep this alternative media publication going. Go to the website, get your subscription today. You can also buy the merchandise, get a Counterpunch radio t-shirt, do what you got to do to help us out. That's greatly appreciated. So uh, if I could turn to my guest today, Very happy to speak with him. It's been a couple of years since he was on the program, so a lot to cover with Ramzi Baroud. Uh, Ramzi is a U.S.-Palestinian journalist. He's a media consultant, an author, an editor at Palestine Chronicle, a senior research fellow at the Center for Islam and Global Affairs, and he is, perhaps most importantly, the author of the recent and excellent book, These Chains Will Be Broken, Palestinian Stories of Struggle and Defiance in Israeli Prisons. That was from 2020. Ramzi Baroud, welcome back to Counterpunch Radio.
1: Uh, Thank you for having me, Eric, and thank you for all the fantastic work that you and Counterpunch uh, continue to do after all these years.
0: Thank you so much for that and for all of your great work. We're gonna talk a bit about the book a little bit later, but I wanna talk a little politics with you right now at the outset. Of course, we're speaking here. It's the very beginning of December of 2020. We are in a transitional phase. Trump is on his way out. Biden is on his way in. And before we can talk about Biden, let's talk a little bit about the Israeli government and what exactly they're thinking and doing in these last days of the Trump administration. So help us understand what are they doing? What are they thinking? What might they do?
1: Well, you know, Netanyahu put it himself uh, uh, best when he said that uh, Israel has never had it better. Uh, than under the presidency of, of Donald Trump, and this is not to suggest that previous presidents were um, less supportive of Israel uh, or less biased, or you know, less uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, fine you know, uh, in terms of financing and in terms of supporting their military and and all of this. But in in actuality, Trump was quite different in a sense. He is the first American president. Who completely marginalizes any concern for any sort of an American foreign policy agenda, uh, even even if uh, quite a humble one, um, and and put the entire American foreign policy apparatus in the Middle East in the service of Israel. Um, Basically, American foreign policy became more like a wish list for president or Israeli prime minister uh, Benjamin Netanyahu whatever Israel wanted it's exactly what Israel got regardless of whether it violates international law or not and of course regardless of it violates America's own foreign policy interests in the middle east or not so we saw so much that's happening under the Trump administration in terms of you know re, you know moving the American embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem uh the this complete dismissal of Palestinian refugees right of return the recognition of um, the Golan Heights to be part and parcel of Israel, uh, this, the annexation of the Golan Heights that took place in the early 1980s, uh, and of course, the annexation of uh, nearly third of the West Bank, although it hasn't really happened with the kind of media fanfare that many people have expected. Uh, in reality, it's it's the de facto annexation is underway as we speak. Uh, now. Of course, America will most likely find a way to return to uh, some kind of a status quo that existed prior to Trump. The problem is um, it's kind of too little too late for that to take place because Biden has made it very clear that he, under no circumstance, will be reversing any of the decisions that were made by his predecessor as far as Israel is concerned. So we are not going to be seeing an American embassy moving back to Tel Aviv. We are not seeing... uh, you know, any of these settlements that have been built and during the uh, Trump administrations to uh, for for the, the settlement construction to even slow down. Everything is going to carry on. Uh, as usual, what we are going to see, however, is kind of a return uh, to, you know, the old-style old, old style political platitudes, uh, peace process, uh, you know, stability, um, uh, negotiations, you know, all the kind of the terminologies, these kind of very deceptive, terminologies that kind of may indicate that something is actually happening when in reality nothing is happening whatsoever except that Israel is continued to do as it pleases uh, in the occupied Palestinian territories. I think the best statement that we have heard about this comes from uh, Miki Zohar, one very influential member of the Israeli uh, Lukud party, the main party in Israel at the moment, and it's the party of uh, Netanyahu himself when he said that these days are an irreplaceable opportunity to establish our hold on the land of Israel and he said that i am sure that our friend uh, donald trump and prime minister netanyahu will be able to take advantage really this has been the game, the name of the game the taken advantage part and indeed they have been taking advantage in every uh, way imaginable uh, they are building expanding the settlements especially in the east jerusalem area uh, to ensure that there is a Total discontinuity, geographic discontinuity, and territorial uh, discontinuity between the West Bank and and Jerusalem. Uh, in addition to other measures, basically to prejudice any possibility of a just uh, and sustainable solution uh, in Palestine. So, and we are going to be seeing a lot more of that until Biden is in power. And by the way, things are not going to dramatically change even when Biden is in power. But there might be a little bit of kind of pull and push there, a little bit of tugging, uh, a little bit of Conflict. They are saying that they are going to try to keep the conflict uh, hidden. You know, um, unlike what happened during the Obama administration when conflict kind of you know went up the surface and all of that. But they want to keep things under wraps so that it doesn't appear at any moment that there is any sort of disagreement between Netanyahu's right-wing government and the new American administration. I want to
0: get to the question of Biden, what to expect from the Biden administration and so forth in a few minutes. But before we leave Trump, I want to ask you your analysis of Trump, the Trump administration, not not Trump, the individual so much, but the Trump administration and its allegiance and close lockstep policy with Israel. What do you attribute that to, as opposed to, say, other Republican administrations that had come before that were also very much uh, pro-Israeli? What is the difference here? Is it is it Jared Kushner and a personal connection? Is it Sheldon Adelson and some of the wealthy financiers that have been bankrolling Trump? Is it, you know, a combination of those
1: and other factors? How do you explain this deep, deep commitment? Right. And, and which is particularly interesting in the sense that we did not know Trump to be a, a, a Zionist ideologue uh, prior to this. We know that he's a business tycoon. He's an opportunistic person who would, you know, change his skin whenever needed in order for him to, um, to you know, uh, elevate his position, strengthen his position, and, and, and benefit uh, in, in any possible way, whether in terms of business or politics. Uh, and, and he said that, I mean, there was a, a particularly interesting... Um, Statement he made at an uh, APAC an conference prior to becoming uh, a president, where he said that we, you know, we should try to be uh, at an equal distance, more or less. That's what he said—an equal distance between Palestinians and Israelis, and not take sides. And there was a lot of fear that Trump, you know, uh, in fact, some people even within the pro-Palestine uh, groups kind of argued that Trump, as insane as he sounded, at least in terms of language and, and discourse. Uh, He might actually be better for the Palestinians in the sense that he is not relying on uh, the APAC's money, you know, the Israeli lobby's money, because that's what most politicians have been after, you know, financial support and backing in their political campaigns, whether at a state level or at the federal level. Um, And you know, Trump is rich; he doesn't need this anymore. Um, But what happened was actually quite the opposite. Um, And and I think there are two main reasons for that Uh, from an opportunistic business point of view. Uh, Trump realized that he actually doesn't need the Palestinians. The Palestinians are not, uh, of, you know, they, they carry no economic value. They have no strategic or geopolitical value. And therefore, they shouldn't even be in the equation altogether. So in a way, he kind of took us back back in the day, in the 50s, 60s, um, even 70s and early 80s when the Palestinians were, um, as a Palestinian leadership, were removed entirely from any political transaction that was taking place in the Middle East and someone else spoke on their behalf uh, with will intentioned or not. So at times Jordan claimed to speak on behalf of Palestinians, King Hussein, Jamal Abdel Nasser of, e- of Egypt, even Gaddafi of Libya. And Palestinians were kind of like uh, second, third class citizens within that political equations, constantly trying to kind of find someone to speak on their behalf, but they did not represent themselves until 1991. Uh, or the early 90s when the Palestinian leadership took direct, uh, um, kind of a direct role in shaping the Palestinian political narrative in the Madrid talks, uh, involving di- Dr. Haider Abdel Shafi and the late Saeb Barakat and uh, Faisal Husseini and others. There was kind of really the time where finally there was a Palestinian leadership that was recognized internationally, speaking on behalf of the Palestinians and, and Trump and, and his administration, but particularly, particularly the the Kushner-led committee, because it was was really Kushner and his personal friendships with uh, Mohammed ibn Zayed in the United Arab Emirates, Mohammed ibn Salman in Saudi Arabia. Ambassador Friedman, of course, played a major role in this. Uh, And they tried to kind of create um, this, this kind of situation where they kind of leaped over Palestinians altogether. Palestinians, just for them, as far as they were concerned, you know, that there was um, the famous statement that was attributed to Mohammed Ibn Salman uh, during a meeting with an Israeli pro-Israel lobby group in Washington, D.C., when he said Palestinians need to either put up or shut up. And that was also repeated by Kushner in a different way later on. So Palestinians can either play the game and get a little bit of money on the side, or they just do, do not belong in this political calculation whatsoever. So that's what happened. Palestinians were removed entirely. Uh, from that agenda. And when the Palestinians were removed entirely, there was absolutely no obstacle whatsoever in the face of Israel to do whatever it pleases, because now it's not accountable to anything. I mean, I know some people would say, well, when was Israel ever accountable to anything? But at least there was some kind of a protocol. At least there was some sort of a discussion and a conversation over what violates Oslo and what doesn't violate Oslo. There was some some references to international law. There were some references to the two state solution. All of this was eradicated. All of this was erased entirely. And the discussion became about normalization, economic integration of Israel into the larger Middle East. And the Palestinians were entirely selected and deleted from that the, the Middle East file of, of Donald Trump. That was really led by Jared Kushner and the brainchild of Jared Kushner himself.
0: When you consider the legacy of Donald Trump and the Trump administration vis-a-vis Palestine, there's so many uh, horrendous chapters that you could think of. Of course, the uh, the U.S. embassy going to Jerusalem is, a, is an obvious one. Uh, land grabbing, the expansion of settlements, looking the other way, all of these things. Um, but one that I think really strikes me and maybe could potentially be uh, one of the real Uh, linchpins of the Trump legacy vis-a-vis Palestine is uh, the designation of the Boycott, divestment, Sanctions movement as anti-Semitic, which was recently done by uh, Secretary of State Pompeo in a visit uh, to one of the settlements. Now, I want to speak to you a little bit about whether or not you think that Well, A, whether or not you think that that was important, significant and anything more than a symbolic gesture. And then B, do you think that it could potentially have a lasting legacy, given that Biden and the incoming Biden administration is likely to uphold that same view?
1: Right. Right. I think I think in a way by um, Trump has done a favor to American politicians and American foreign policy and the Congress as well. I mean, it's important that we note that none, almost none, of the policies regarding Palestine that were enacted by Donald Trump um, came out of nowhere. Nothing was just really just he grabbed it from the air and created new policies and new legacies that did not exist. Almost every single decision he made in favor of Israel had some roots in American foreign policy or or in in American law. For example, uh, the the uh, the Jerusalem Embassy Act. Uh, in which he enacted. I mean, the Embassy Act was, you know, passed in the mid 1990s. Both sides of the aisle, Democrats, Republicans, voted in near, you know, uh, major. I mean, in, in 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 full majority, of course. But there were very few people who dared uh, uh, reject. The claim that Jerusalem should be the eternal capital of Israel, regardless of international law. What happened since then is that there is this, you know, interesting tradition that every American president decided to postpone that enactment that passed by the U.S. Congress. I think it was 94, if I remember correctly. And, and every six months they would sign off and, you know, a waiver would say, let's wait for another six months, let's wait for another six months, and so forth and so on. And Trump came and he said, well, if Palestinians really don't matter to anybody, and I'm not really interested in the peace process, you know, which itself is a, is a scam, really, a foreign policy scam aimed at ensuring American leadership in the region. And I think this is something that we really do need to take talk about in the sense that, you know, it's not like, oh, Biden dismissed any prospect for peace. He didn't. There was no prospects for peace under the American leadership in the Middle East. What was happening in the Middle East is an American attempt at imposing itself in two different ways. Of course, there was the military means, the you know invasion of Iraq and and, and involvement in other military conflicts, and of course the political means. The political means was the peace process. That was the American, um, um, you know, the um, American uh, method of of determining friends and enemies in the Middle East. If you agree with the peace process, you are a moderate Arab, moderate Middle Eastern regime. If you disagree, you are extremist, you are terrorist, you are a terrorist sympathizer. So it was useful in that sense, not because really the Americans, after all of these years, they were still insisting that, yes, a just peace is still possible. We know it was really nonsensical to begin with, even during the heyday of the peace process. What Trump has decided since for him uh, American foreign, traditional American foreign policy did not matter anymore. It kind of follows rationally that the peace process didn't didn't add up. It was unimportant. Normalization, economic integration was important. Getting Saudi uh, and 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 Emirati and Qatari billions. Was far more important, so why should I bother? So he went basically and and went back and and accepted all of these things that have already existed in American in American political agenda. Moving the embassy, finally declaring that the the, the settlements are uh, legal and and you know the Golan Heights and all of these things. But every single one of these of these issues actually existed. Uh, and had basis in American foreign policy. They wanted to do these things, but they did not have, maybe they did not feel like it was the opportune time politically to move forward with these issues. Every single administration, including the Bill Clinton administration, including the Obama administration. Uh, And now Trump changed the rules of the game entirely, and therefore there was no need for any of of these points or these items on the agenda in the first place.
0: I think we'd be remiss in talking about Israel in the waning days of the Trump administration, if we didn't also talk about the very recent assassination of a top Iranian nuclear scientist, or rather the head of the nuclear program, and what many around the world are speculating about, you know, who carried that out, what that means, why that was done, the timing, etc. So I'd just like to get your comment on Everything that you said, of course, I agree with uh, With respect to the Trump administration and their policies on Israel and the Palestinians – But give me your analysis of the Trump uh, posture towards Iran. I mean, there's a number of ways to read it, and it's not uh, exclusively that the Trump administration was doing uh, Israel's bidding, although that's certainly part of it. I'd I'd like to get your analysis of the U.S. posture as it relates to Iran and whether or not the change to a Biden administration is really going to affect that issue and also potentially the Palestinians.
1: Right, so Iran is is one of these unifying subjects now in the minds, not just of Israel, but few Arab countries. They refer to them in the media as Sunni Arabs. It's just really not true at all because you know Algeria, Mauritania, Tunisia, there are Sunni Arabs. Uh, they are not really involved in this. Uh, even Qatar is a Sunni Arab, and they are not involved in this. but th- these are very specific agendas of, of certain Arab countries, Saudi Arabia. Uh, and, and the United Arab Emirates, and that for strategic reasons and for economic reasons, and of course Bahrain, and that's for for uh, fear that the majority of Shi'as who live in Bahrain will eventually uh, kind of overthrow the uh, Ibn Khalifa's regime and 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 you know change the entire political setup of that country. This is why there is so much enthusiasm in Bahrain to link up to Israel, so that they could feel protected if the two hegemons, you know, the Saudis and the Israelis are kind of sheltering the Khalifa family and the the royals of that country, then they are more or less safe from Iran. Um, And I think Trump knew this, knew knew this very well because for years during the Obama administration, there was this uh, much discussion in Middle Eastern media, especially in Arabic media, that Obama has betrayed the Arabs. Obama has betrayed the Saudis. You know what is going on here? Why is he signing nuclear pacts with Iran? Why is he normalizing Iran's, you know, uh, uh, you know, strengthen hegemony in the region? And why is this giving of back of, of hundreds of billions of dollars of Iranian money, Iranian assets that were held illegally by the U.S. and by other Western powers? You know, is going to be given back, and they are going to use this not just to advance. Uh, Iranians' economy, but to also advance Iran's strategic interests in Bahrain, in Yemen, in Syria, in Lebanon, and even in Gaza. Um, so, it, you know, Trump knew very well that this is something that Israel, the Saudis, the Emiratis agree on. And in order for him to win favor and to prove that he is a light, that betrayer, uh, Obama, he is going to immediately take action. And he did. Number one, he, he, uh, you know, took his country, withdrew from the Iran uh, uh, nuclear uh, agreement. Uh, That was a a very, very important step for Israel, and I don't think under any circumstance Israel would have uh, agreed to work with Trump if he did not take that step. That step, of course, earned the U.S. um, uh, nearly $200 billion immediately from the Saudis and the Emirati, an amount that kept growing with time. So he felt like it really was worth that kind of effort. However, he didn't want to go to war against Iran. It was very clear that Trump wasn't really in the appetite for war, and he knew that what happened in Iraq was a disaster. Iraq is a much smaller country than Iran. Iran is much more powerful, uh, geographically larger, more resourceful, uh, and has much greater influence in the region. And he did not want to take that gamble, so he did the next best thing. Which is more and more sanctions on Iran, total isolation of Iran in every possible way, and when that was not enough, um, you know, especially in, in in kind of the the final period in Trump's um, uh, uh, you know Trump's rule, he began kind of taking. The kind of, you know, violent steps that were calculated, knowing that the Iranian response will not tantamount to an all out war. It started with the killing of Soleimani and then eventually with uh, the, the assassination of Mohsen Fakhrizadeh uh, a few days ago, uh, knowing that this is something that Israel really, really wanted. And he wanted to kind of maintain that, you know, hammer that message home that I stood by you until the very, very end, and this is the best I can give you under these circumstances. And and sadly, I, I think there will be more. I mean, you know, um, we've, we've been talking about the fact that we should be expecting something from the Americans. They went after Fakhrizada. I don't think this is the end of it. I think more will happen, whether directly through the U.S. or uh, through an American Saudi-Israeli, um, uh some, some kind of a plot by the three of them, or at least allow the Israelis, give them a free hand to do whatever they needed to do in Lebanon, in Syria, uh and in Iran. And I think we will be seeing more of this in coming in coming days and weeks.
0: Much more to talk about. Let's take a quick break. On the other side of the break, we'll continue the conversation. We want to talk a little bit about demographics, demographic imperatives for the Israeli state, and what that means for uh, Israel and the Palestinians. We want to talk, of course, about Biden, the incoming administration, and a whole lot more with Ramsey Baroud. You're listening to Counterpunch Radio. Enjoy the music. We'll be right back. <laughs> El tipo este, tonto noiza, jugada para la meta y borroqueca. Hay que hacer no solamente y hablar boycott y by told us knowledge was the fifth element the Truth behind the lies is what the music represents So how the fuck you gonna have a peace settlement When people want a piece of your land to build settlements It's all different kind of terrorism you could perpetrate Every dead body causes karma to circulate It's suicide bombing buildings full of civilians Or cutting off water to cities full of children You can't try to justify collective punishment A country never finds peace and bodies buried under it I guess some Americans just don't remember there's a slave graveyard under the World Trade Center Stop the criticism of Iranian nuclear vision Until mutual nuclear disarmament's the mission This ain't about religion, Muslim Jew or Christian It's about people making money off of that division Sin que medien armamentos digo siempre es buen momento para iniciar entendimiento Es demasiado el en desencuentro siento Que el respeto debe ser boleto al parlamento. Es el respeto el primer paso, si no lo que sigue es con Es un complejo asunto. ¿Cuánto tiempo son? Cientos de años. El premio al mayor daño, malos de menor tamaño. Como Me empeño yo. en no estar de acuerdo con ninguna posición que implique A lo más cual versión de discriminación, brother. Violencia intolerancia en cualquier forma de presión. Más allá de cualquier religión, visión de obsesión. Oh, 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 oh. Hacer, no solamente hablar. Israel. I am recognizing that the voices in my head are urging me to be myself and never follow when I'm led. So with that said, it's insurgency as we confirm some things. I am anti-Zionist and any fundamentalist. The devil's in the specifics, mixing with your favorite dish. You can beef with Israel and not be anti-Semitic. Don't buy beef from Israel cause you're paying to kill them kids. So if you're rocking this shit, go ahead do the Gaza Strip. My heart race when I hit apartheid from up they lids. Have lifted Mr. Olympic scene, free Mandela pickets, and this image being repeatedly to street for fellow children, even freed from prison because of global criticism of this horrible system boycotted by the citizens. And we're back chatting with Ramsey Baroud again. The new book, These Chains Will Be Broken. Palestinian stories of struggle and defiance in Israeli prisons. That's from Clarity Press, twenty twenty. Excellent book. Get yourself a copy. It's the holidays. A perfect time to get a book of that emotional gravity. Really, really important uh, stories for people to to know. So, uh, Ramzi, I want to pick up where we left off and talk a little bit about demographics, because this is, of course, such a critical issue when it comes to Israeli policy towards the Palestinians and towards the uh, occupied territory. So can you talk a little bit about the demographic crisis that Israel is facing, how they are using, I guess, what you might call somewhat legal and somewhat extra legal means to address their demographic crisis and just uh, introduce uh, our listeners to that issue?
1: So I, I think it's a very important issue, and I don't think it, it receives the kind of, disc, you know, the discussion that it, it deserves. And the reason behind that is we uh, kind of often think of political issues or, or conflict in terms of politics and military, but then then you have the cultural um, aspect. And, and you know, Israeli Israeli uh, historians and, uh, and journalists have been kind of talking more, you know, once in a while you kind of see this article, you know, uh, uh, surfacing on Haaretz or somewhere else, in which there's a warning, not a warning of the demographics itself, but that Israel as a culture will be swept away by Palestine as a culture. And I think that what most likely is is, is going to be the culmination of this so-called conflict anyway, uh, simply because Palestinian culture is rooted and it's it's part of a larger music of Arab. Middle Eastern cultures that have been going on for such a long time, for hundreds, if not thousands of years, compared to an Israeli culture that really was kind of invented, you know, kind of a big mishmash of uh, Eastern European, you know, uh, cultures and coming from all over the world. And because there was no particular identity to the Israeli culture, um, there was this. You know, kind of, you know, the process of stealing land was also accompanied with the process of stealing culture. So you hear these kind of interesting notions about Israeli hummus and Israeli couscous and uh, Israeli this and that that is essentially Palestinian and essentially Arab and essentially Middle Eastern and has nothing to do with Israel whatsoever, simply because we haven't yet seen a, a brand of an Israeli culture despite the fact that Israel has been around for 70 years, there is nothing that's so unique that distinguishes Israel uh, in complete separation from the region around it. Now, if you put this within, within, so that you have that cultural issue, if you put it within the context of the demographics, of the fact that uh, the number of Palestinians continue to grow despite of all attempts at isolating, isolating them and confining them to various zones, like in the West Bank, Uh, you know, we speak about zone A, B, and C, and that's a whole different story. But even within these zones, A, B, and C, you have people who are divided by checkpoints and by apartheid walls and by fences and by trenches and that sort of thing. And of course, you have the Palestinians who are living in isolation, within isolation in East Jerusalem, uh, you know, who are isolated, they are not part, you know, incorporated into Israel as a polity and and as, as a uh, a political uh, and social landscape, and they are not allowed to connect with their Palestinian brethren in Bethlehem, in Beit Jala, and in the surrounding areas in the West Bank. Um, but within the, the East Jerusalem itself, Palestinian communities are cut off from each other, living in isolated villages and refugee camps, and so forth and so on. And you know, this is be- basically the paradigm applied anywhere else, whether to Palestinians living inside Israel. Those are the Palestinians who were not ethnically cleansed in 1948. Uh, Palestinians, of course, who are living under complete and utter isolation in the Gaza Strip and and so forth. Yet despite of all of this, the Israelis keep calculating the numbers and the demographics are not adding up. For them, Palestinians as a people, as a nation, not as Mahmoud Abbas, not as a Palestinian leadership, not as a Palestinian authority, they could care less about this, but as a people. Um, that is the real threat. This is why they refer to it as the demographic bomb. This demographic bomb, they, they have been obsessing with numbers from the very beginning in nineteen forty-eight, when they tried to add up, you know, the 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 way, even the way that ethnic cleansing took place in nineteen forty-eight, it was done in a very calculated way, ethnically cleansing people who are living in the population centers and who had the potential of growing in numbers and outgrowing the number of Israeli Jews who moved to Palestine later on, and so forth and so on. Now, an interesting thing, just this October alone, there was an estimation that was done by the uh, by the housing ministry. Now, the housing ministry is all over the world are really there about housing people at an equal footing. I mean, more or less, I mean, I I know it's not an ideal situation, even here in the United States. But the housing ministry in Israel is obsessed with demographics. They try to find regions in which they fear that Palestinian Arabs are going to grow in their numbers and they are going to um, uh, uh, basically marginalize and and, and, and reduce the number of Israeli Jews. So they play this, this game in advance. The housing ministry said... In 2050, there was an internal report that was published by Haaretz on October 29th that said uh, in 2050, the Palestinians uh, of the, uh, a town called Harish in northern Israel are going, the Palestinian Arabs are going to, be, uh, to grow in their number uh, to outnumber the Israeli Jews. So as a result, they have decided to do the following. They have decided to expand the town of Harish to include Jews only and to exclude Arabs. And therefore, they will maintain the majority of, of uh, Jews in the town of Harish uh, you know, past 2050. And during this time, of course, they are going to take every measure you can think of in order for them to reduce the number of Palestinians in that area. Now, this, little, you know, this example is just a kind of a microcosm of something that's happening at a mass scale throughout Israel and the Nakab in particular, the Palestinian Bedouins uh, of the Nakab area or Nakab as they call it, um, you know, are are, you know, living really kind of the, the, the most extreme example of that kind of demographic social experiment. They are constantly hauling them into reservations, into you know, concentration camps, into areas in which the numbers they are not so that they are not allowed natural demographic growth. That's the idea. If you isolate them, if you discourage them from building, if you destroy their villages, like the village of Araqib, for example, it was destroyed hundreds of times. And and the Israelis are using it also symbolically, the Palestinians keep rebuilding Araqib and the Israelis keep destroying Araqib. And they are using it as an example that under no circumstance will you be uh, allowed to build a community and to thrive and to set roots and to challenge the demographic nature of Israeli planning, uh, not just in the Nakab, but everywhere else in Palestine. And and by the way, Eric, I think much of what's, you know, the discussion about Area C, which is about 60% of the West Bank, uh, and we know that most of the annexation will be taking place in Area C. Uh, Area C in particular is designated for annexation because it is, uh, geographically important for Israel, that's where the most arable land, that's where the most Palestinian resources in terms of water, in terms of land, in terms of other things, are located in Area C. But that is the least populated of Palestinian areas in the West Bank. They want the land, they don't want the people, and they keep pushing the people behind walls, fences, and and you know, really more or less reservations and and townships, and and creating this comp- ensuring complete disconnect. At a geographic level between the, these various communities, so they do not uh, grow in any natural way.
0: And can you speak a little bit about the way in which the Israeli state is using its uh, a legal? Frameworks in order to uh, achieve this demographic superiority. I'm thinking specifically of the recent uh, nationality law and the various legal maneuvers that are being used to strip uh, uh, Arab Israelis of citizenship and other things like that. So, can you speak a little bit about some of these maneuvers that the state is making?
1: Of course, and these maneuvers, by the way, started in in you know a long, long time ago. Uh, you know, following the ethnic cleansing of Palestinians, nearly eight hundred thousand. Palestinians were ethnically cleansed in 1947-48, creating space for the state of Israel to exist uh, upon the ruins of nearly 500 Palestinian village, town, and localities throughout Palestine, throughout historic Palestine. And there was that immediate process of renaming, renaming everything, uh, erasing the Palestinian village and its heritage and giving it a Hebrew name. uh, uh, and, And usually these names, strangely enough, are derivatives of the Arabic name. so you kind of need to hear, you know, like uh, uh, Ashdod uh, is the uh, is the town of Isdud, for example. But they they tried their very best to kind of erase the identity uh, of of the Palestinians who who were forced out of their homes and villages and forced to flee in '48, and and that carried on for for a long time. But I think there was a period in which uh, Israel felt maybe at peace that demographically. Things are moving in the right direction. On one hand, they can, you know, they are maintaining majority. And when you have majority in the Knesset, you have majority in the Israeli parliament, you can pass all sorts of discriminatory laws against Palestinians to ensure you know, the, 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 the socio-cultural discontinuity of these communities, ensure their demise, their imprisonment, and, 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 and so forth and so on. But what ended up happening over time, and that's really when we began seeing the rise of the right-wing constituency in Israel, uh, the the left in Israel, if really there was ever a left in Israel, uh, is is now below margin of error. There is a possibility that if elections, the fourth election in Israel within a year and a half, two years, takes place in March, uh, the Labor Party, which is really the founding uh, party of Israel. Might not even register a single uh, a single seat in the Israeli Knesset. So this rise of the right uh, and the ultra right and the ultra nationalists and the and, and the really the neo fascists of Israel um, was accompanied by a lot of fear that we need to start taking some serious moves here in order for us to ensure that we have continued demographic superiority. Um, I remember when uh, Avigdor Lieberman, who later became the the uh, minister of of defense uh, uh, in in Israel, uh, even when when he made his kind of uh, a case for himself politically, when he was kind of hardly known during those years, he came up, you know, he kind of championed the idea of the transfer. Let's transfer, meaning ethnically cleanse um, hundreds of thousands of Palestinians from today is Israel, and let's just, you know, dump them in the West Bank, and the Palestinians can deal with it uh, because of that demographic issue. And eventually, he talked about the land swap. Let's give uh, pal- the Palestinian populations who are living in the populated centers uh, in the Galilee, in Umm al-Fahim, and other Palestinian Arabic towns in Israel, let's bring them into the under the jurisdiction of the Palestinian Authority, and in exchange, we are going to take over um you know the settlements and all of this and this is really these are the roots eric of the annexation i mean the, what they are actually doing the is Avigdor Lieberman's idea of transfer or and, and swap is actually happening without any anything being swapped without the palestinians have to give um anything back everything or, or 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 getting anything back and you know so everything that israel has been doing since then and until today is related uh, with with the issue and the obsession of demographics. And of course, this is all happening within illegal framework. Like for example, the nation state law. Uh, we know that Israel has existed as a Jewish state, but we also know that Israel doesn't have a constitution and doesn't have defined boundaries. And that was was not done randomly. This was done on purpose. The purpose here being that there was always space for Israel to redefine itself in any way and redefine itself geographically as well in any way that it finds fit. So the basic law, it's ruled through a series of what they call basic laws. And uh, the basic law of the nation state bill basically undermined the Arabic language, uh, undermined Arabic culture, uh, completely removed any sort of historical connection between Palestinians and Palestine and gave the uh, right of self-determination, not just to Israeli Jews, but to Jews anywhere in the world, and therefore, kind of confirming the, this trajectory of racism and apartheid that has been taking place for such a long time. Just one last thing I want—I would like to say about the issue of apartheid. You know, for many years we have been arguing that apartheid is in—you know—is—is—is uh, is, is, is fully manifesting itself in Palestine and Israel. And we, you know, there's been a lot of arguments that well, maybe Israel is moving in that direction, but we don't have a full-fledged apartheid as of yet. Well, I think the nation-state bill kind of really ended that conversation altogether, kind of nipped it in the bud in the sense that, you know, now by law, Israel is a country for the Jews and the Jews only, and anybody else who doesn't fit that definition um, has absolutely no rights, no human rights, no basic rights under the uh, Israeli basic rights and the Israeli law.
0: And perhaps there's no more uh, tangible and uh, viscerally shocking uh, example of the kind of apartheid ideology and mentality that you're talking about than the demolitions and the mass evictions. And I know you've recently been writing uh, on this issue, and I want to ask you if you could just explain it For our listeners, particularly, you know, maybe those uninitiated on this issue, why Israel does this? What is the logic behind it? Is it uh, for practical purposes? Does it have a practical reason? Is it psychological warfare? Is it a combination of those things? And then also, is this uh, expanding? Is this picking up the pace? And if so, where is it headed?
1: So Israel knows that it has a limited window of opportunity. Uh, not just the, the final days of Trump's the Trump administration, but also in the early months of the Biden administration. Um, it, it will take um, the U.S. a long time to, if if indeed there was even a uh, uh, faint interest in developing an actual strategy regarding Palestine and Israel, it's going to take months for that to take place. And, and I'm not really optimistic under... Under uh, uh, you know Tony uh, Blinken, I mean we know his legacy, we know his uh, statements on the issue, and we know you know the, the new Secretary of State that was nominated by Biden, and we know of his very strong friendships and relationships with uh, Israel, particularly the Israeli right wing camp. Um, so it, if there is indeed any U.S. Uh, foreign policy that would be articulated in the in the in a framework of of, of a doctrine, an agenda, uh, a plan of any kind, it will take months for that. Um, to actually uh, manifest itself in any practical way during this time, Israel, of course, is now keen on taking some very serious and and critical steps to ensure that it, it you know, and knowing that none of these steps will be reversed, uh, it's important for Israel to take these steps now in order for them to ensure that there can be no actual discussion about a Palestinian state anytime soon. Um, so. Yes, of course, there is the psychological component, and you know we've been talking about the Nakba, you know, the Nakba of 1948, the catastrophe of 1948, and you know, as if it's an event that was isolated in time and, and space, but in actuality, it's not. The Nakba continues because the Nakba was based on the idea of murder and ethnic cleansing and colon uh, and colonization, and that continues in what. Um, Uh, Israeli professor uh, and historian Ilan Pape refers to as the incremental genocide. So that incremental genocide is happening. The ethnic cleansing that is in the nakab underway as we speak is is incremental genocide, and it's happening. Uh, This The latest decision to ethnically cleanse 80 families out of the neighborhood of Sheikh Jarrah in East Jerusalem, Uh, and more will follow in Silwan and elsewhere, in East Jerusalem, is part of that incremental genocide, and it's a continued part of the Nakba, and it's happening regardless of the political circumstances outside. But I think um, the, the, the particular steps that the Netanyahu government has taken uh, in the last few weeks, and I, I presume in, in, in next weeks and months, are strategic more than anything else. Like for example, the the massive building that is expected in the uh, settlement, in the illegal Jewish settlement of Givat Hamatos uh, in, in East Jerusalem, this is not random, this is very much strategic uh, in the sense that once the development of Givat Hamatos is going to, uh, once it's completed, then Bethlehem and Jerusalem are completely uh, cut off. Uh, another settlement uh, uh, is is uh, is that of uh, Ramat Shlomo, also located in East Jerusalem. More developments will be happening in Ramat Shlomo again. Uh, you know, not only the Americans transfer their embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Now there is no discussion about Jerusalem because even from a practical point of view, the con- conversation is moot. Because now with Givat Hamatos and Ramat Shlomo and thousands of new families moving in, you know what do you expect from us? Do You want us to ethnic cleanse, you know, ethnic cleanse our own people for the Palestinians to have their capital in East Jerusalem. So it kind of really kind of shuts off the argument regarding East Jerusalem being that designated capital for the Palestinian state. And I think in, you know in in, in the next uh, days and weeks we are going to be seeing more announcements of yet more illegal Jewish settlements, but again this time uh, more of like kind of strategically positioned settlements with the aim of prejudicing any attempt uh, by Biden and Washington to kind of return back to the old language about uh, the peace process and the two-state solutions and so forth.
0: One of the obvious themes in talking about uh, Israeli moves against the Palestinians is about land grabbing. It is quite literally the stealing of land, the stealing of resources, and it's a, it's very easy to get caught up in thinking only about land. But in fact, there's quite a lot going on off the coast in the territorial waters, territorial waters that actually belong to the Palestinians. And I'm thinking of uh, major gas finds off the coast of Palestine, uh, including untapped uh, gas fields that are worth billions of dollars potentially to the Palestinians. Israel covets these resources as well. Israel has targeted them. Can you speak a little bit about Israeli moves in the eastern Mediterranean and what that means for the potential for Palestinians to have some of that mineral uh, resource wealth?
1: Absolutely. So there's been a, a geopolitical war that has been kind of brewing for quite some time. And there's been kind of even talks about this war kind of translating to something actually physical on the ground, as in a Material conflict and and uh, especially between uh, Turkey uh, on one hand and and Greece and Cyprus uh, on the other. We know that uh, a while back Israel, Greece, and Cyprus um, signed an agreement uh, regarding the uh, extension of the uh, the the uh, a gas pipeline uh, from uh, from Israel, the uh field in particular, or the Bathayan basin, um, all the way to Europe. Uh, to Italy and 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 other European uh, uh, entities uh, that would go through the territorial waters of uh, Cyprus and Greece. Um, uh, Egypt quickly joined in, uh, and um, and the result of this it kind of really created this conflict that uh, resulted to an outright conflict between Turkey and Greece. And sadly, the media have been discussing. The, the the Turkish-Greek conflict as if it's an extension of their 1974 war uh, with absolutely no context and no relations to the agreement that was signed by uh, Netanyahu and the leaders of these countries just shortly before that. Because Turkey and Russia and as well, they feel that this is an attempt by Europe to isolate them. On one hand, if Turkey is being cut off, uh, in such a way, uh, they will not be able to reach the territorial waters uh, of their allies, especially in Libya and uh, Turkey will no longer be used as a corridor for Russian gas uh, that is being transferred to um, to uh, to Europe so Turkey sets to lose a massive amount of money, and Russia as well is going to uh, be suffering uh, greatly financially as a result of this for 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 Europeans, of course, this is quite interesting because, you know, as Palestinians, we have been demanding sanctions and calling on um, Europe and other uh, other entities to boycott Israel and to hold Israel accountable to its war crimes in Palestine through economic sanctions. Uh, but what we are actually seeing is the exact opposite. We are seeing um, further integration of Israel. Uh, in the European political sphere. And that's really quite dangerous. Uh, it's, it, it's dangerous because it's very empowering for Israel in Europe, but it's also empowering for Israel in the Middle East as well. Now Israel is selling gas uh, after the massive finds that they found in the Levith, uh, Levithian uh, Basin. They are selling gas to Egypt, and they are selling gas to Jordan as well. And believe it or not, the first customer of that Israeli gas that really should have never been Israeli gas in the first place was the Palestinian Authority. They were the first to buy their own gas um, from Israel uh, in order for them to be able to generate electricity. And you would say, well, this is kind of ludicrous. Why would the Palestinians do this? Well, it's not the first time. The water in the West Bank right now is being sold by an Israeli company that steals the water from the Palestinian aquifers in the West Bank and and turn around and sell it back to the Palestinians. So the Palestinians not only ha- don't have access to their own gas, they also don't have access to their own water. And th- they are being really kind of largely excluded from, from the discussion over gas. I mean, this issue appears to be uh, an exclusively an Israeli issue, and Israel is kind of setting the agenda, the political and economic agenda of the natural Gas in that region, of course, at the expense of Russia, Turkey, the Turk Stream, and the Nord Stream, the two main uh, uh sources of European gas that have been coming through Russia. Now, the other interesting thing is that there was a massive find uh in, in of gas uh in uh, you know n- close to the Gaza coast that falls, even according to the unfair Oslo uh agreement, falls within the Palestinian territorial water uh, and that gas not only palestinians will never be you know recipients of financial aid from anybody and and not only palestinians will you know have their own uh satisfy their own market need of gas and energy uh, but they will actually be able to export their own gas and and and, and, and yet they are not allowed to do so uh israel uh, has been planning to actually Steel, of course, the the, the, is the Palestinian natural gas of the, uh, the Gaza basin, uh, of the coast of Gaza. And uh, it has been sitting there for 20 years after the find that was made by British Petroleum. I remember at the time, Yasser Arafat re, uh, referred to this as a gift from God, he said, in the sense that um, uh, finally, we have liberated ourselves economically, uh, but if, of course, Israel doesn't want a situation in, in which Palestinians are economically independent in any way. So they made it impossible for Palestinians to access their own gas, and they are actually planning and plotting to steal that gas as well. Um, and and, and it, it's, it's the sad, tragic situation, but that is also the nature of colonialism. I mean, you do not colonize the land and oppress the people and, uh, and, and do not make use of the resources. That's the, really the very essence of colonialism. So this fight over natural gas that Israel is sadly winning is also part of the colonial struggle of Palestinians against Israel.
0: 100% could not have said that better. Now, we have just a couple of minutes left, Ramsey. so I want to just talk a little bit, uh, if we could, about your book, These Chains Will Be Broken, Palestinian Stories of Struggle and Defiance in Israeli Prisons. Talk to me a little bit about the genesis of this book. What, uh, where did the idea for this come from? What drove you to write this and just uh, the evolution of the project?
1: Uh, it, it It's an extension of, of other projects that I began in, in 2003 with my first book uh, Searching Janine Eyewitness Accounts of the Israeli Invasion, which was kind of a, you know, kind of looking back at it as much as I, um, you know, felt strongly about the need to tell the story of what happened in the Janine refugee camp in 2002, the Israeli massacre and so forth. From a Palestinian point of view, I haven't really developed the needed tools Uh, that would allow me to present the Palestinian story or the Palestinian narrative uh, in a way that would actually tell the story of Palestine through Palestinians and Palestinians only. Um, So I wrote several books since then, The Second Palestinian Intifada, Chronicle of a People's Struggle. Uh, Then there was my book, My Father Was a Freedom Fighter, Gaza's Untold Story, in which I tried to tell the story of Gaza, uh, through ordinary people. And this is really, I, I strongly believe uh, what Antonio Gramsci has long argued that, that everyone has a capacity of being an intellectual even though they do not serve uh, you know, that within, within uh, designated spaces as, if in, as intellectuals. Um, and I, so I wanted to tell the Palestinian story. I wanted to recenter the Palestinian story uh, and, and tell it through the point of view of the Palestinians themselves. It's part of what we call reclaiming the narrative of Palestine. No, thank you. We don't want anyone to speak on our behalf. We need the solidarity of everyone everywhere, but we are able to articulate our own story in our own way. Um, and a few books later, that led me to the story of the prisoners, simply because I felt like this is the most profound of all Palestinian stories, yet it is the least told. Um, perhaps many people are afraid that you champion the cause of prisoners, people who already have kind of garnered that bad reputation of being people who used perhaps violence in their way of resisting the Israeli occupation. So not a lot of people wanted to touch that issue. And sadly, in the media, we tend to talk about prisoners only when they are on a hunger strike and only when they are on an advanced form of hunger strike. You know, free um, uh, you know this prisoner or that prisoner because they are gonna die if if they are not freed, and so forth and so on. But I wanted to recenter it. I wanted to retell the story of Palestine through you know uh, those organic intellectuals. Another Gramscian term: the organic intellectuals of Palestine. Tell me your story the way you see it. I am not an Israeli military judge. I am not questioning your motives. There is it's it's a judgment free zone here. Why have you done what? You, have you done? What did you experience? What are your roots? What's your history? Tell us about your, your, you know, the, the, the way you feel in love with your, with with your wife, and tell us about your children, and tell us about your your family, and tell us about your hopes and your dreams, and and the outcome was something that really even astonished me myself. Um, so in a way, we are changing the conversation on Palestine altogether, and it's just part of that effort, and I'm. Really quite happy to see that the book is going to be translated to Italian, Spanish, French, and other languages. And, and many of those prisoners who have, you know, their stories been told in the book, they are finally finding some breathing room where they can actually speak, uh, uh, you know, in, in a non-dehumanized way to the media and to the rest of the world as, as you know, Palestinian fighters and intellectuals whose stories deserve to be heard and listened to.
0: My final question to you—it's probably one I asked you the last time we spoke—but I think it's of, of of a lot a lot of value to people, um, Ramsey. When when you're speaking to people who are learning about these issues, who are living in the West, you know, in the global North, in the United States, in Europe, or Australia or elsewhere. Um, Oftentimes, there is this lingering question. Maybe people are afraid to ask it or, or whatever, but I want to just ask you very simply what do you tell people who say, What can I do to help the Palestinian cause?
1: Absolutely. I think one of the main issues, the main hindrances of the Palestinian cause finally achieving the, the coveted freedom and justice uh, and peace for, Pal- for the Palestinian people is the misinformation. Uh, that is constantly being spooked through uh, the mainstream corporate media regarding Palestine and the Palestinians, this depiction of Palestinians as terrorists uh, and for Israel you know presenting itself as, as a as a, a you know an oasis of democracy and peace and civilization in the middle east, so debunking I think really one one of the main thing that can be done here, trying to understand history, politics from a Palestinian point of view, listening to Palest- the Palestinian people and help us in the debunking of the Israeli propaganda. Um, I think Israel is really not much of a state as much as of an illusion, an idea that Israel is a haven. Uh, uh, and Israel was, a, was the most ideal answer to tragedies that happened in Europe and elsewhere. And, and of course, there's no truth to that. Uh, to the contrary, Israel was a continuation of these tragedies that happened in Europe. And if you really truly care about the human rights, if you truly care about justice and peace and, 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 and all of this, you have to stand against apartheid in Israel, against Israeli racism, not for it. So understanding, really more important than anything else, understanding. And once you understand, you can lend your solidarity in a proper way. Not as the center stage, not for, for you to marginalize Palestinians, but to listen to them to understand things from their point of view, to appreciate their culture, to appreciate them as human beings. Not, uh, okay, fine, we achieve not as terrorists, but also not as victims either, because we are neither. Uh, We are a thriving, strong nation that has fought and will continue to fight, and we take every opportunity at living a normal life under the harshest of circumstances. Now, once you achieve that, and once you are taking your part in the solidarity movement and you are playing a part in, having a better understanding of the situation in palestine now you you know the sky is the limit you can do so much with this you can participate in the political conversations you can hold your representatives accountable you can hold the media accountable and so forth and so on so you can actually take that understanding and that solidarity and translate it to so many different things depending on the political context of your community you can be part of our boycott movement the very act of not buying an israeli product is a political act, is in itself a political act. And by you making that decision, you become a political agent in solidarity with the Palestinian people. So much can be done, and, and, and but it has to be based on true and organic understanding of the situation and the struggle of Palestine.
0: Ramzi Baroud, powerful voice for the Palestinian people. I highly recommend the book. These chains will be broken. Palestinian stories of struggle and defiance in Israeli prisons, giving voice to the Palestinian people to speak for themselves. So powerful, so important. Again, Ramzi Baroud, you can go uh, find all of his work on the website, RamziBaroud.net. Go there. Of course, Palestine Chronicle, he is the editor. Ramzi Baroud, of course, always appears in Counterpunch. Whenever we and publish him. Thanks again, as always, Ramsey, for all of your work.
1: Thank you very much, Eric, and keep up the good work.
0: Listeners, thank you, as always, for listening and supporting Counterpunch, and we'll chat again next week.